I'm Peter Medic, and you're listening to Episode 2 of Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs. If this is the first time you've dropped into the story, you might want to listen to the previous episode, but you're welcome to stick around. Right quick, before we start, any flubs, goofs, and mispronunciations or errors are mine. If you hear one or two and want to tell me about them, stop by 44from26.com forward slash contact and click the button to leave a voicemail or send an email. Another thing, I want to give a special thank you to the hundreds of women and men in the field who recorded and cataloged the bird calls and songs I used over the course of this audiobook. You are doing selfless and important work. Thank you. I could wish Robin less native and plebeian in one respect, the building of his nest. Its coarse material and rough masonry are creditable neither to his skill as a workman nor to his taste as an artist. I am the more forcibly reminded of his deficiency in this respect from observing yonder hummingbird's nest, which is a marvel of fitness and adaptation, a proper setting for this winged gem. The body of it composed of a white felt-like substance, probably the down of some plant or wool of some worm and toned down in keeping with the branch on which it sits by minute tree lichens woven together by threads as fine and frail as gossamer. From Robin's good looks and musical turn, we might reasonably predict a domicile of equal fitness and elegance. At least I demand of him as clean and handsome a nest as the kingbirds, whose harsh jingle compared with the robin's morning melody is a clatter of pots and kettles beside the tone of a flute. I love his note and ways better even than those of the orchard starling or the Baltimore oriole. Yet his nest, compared with theirs, is a half-subterranean hut contrasted with a Roman villa. There is something courtly and poetical in a pencil nest. Next to a castle in the air is a dwelling suspended to the slender branch of a tall tree, swayed and rocked forever by the wind. Why need wings be afraid of falling? Why build only where the boys can climb? After all, we must set it down to the account of the robin's democratic turn. He is no aristocrat, but one of the people, and therefore we should expect stability in his workmanship rather than elegance. Another April bird which makes her appearance sometimes earlier and sometimes later than robin, and whose memory I fondly cherish, is the Phoebe bird, or the pioneer of the flycatchers. In the inland farming districts, I used to notice her on some bright morning about Easter Day, proclaiming her arrival with much variety of motion and attitude from the peak of the barn or the hay shed. As yet, you may have heard only the plaintive homesick note of the bluebird or the faint trill of the song sparrow, and Phoebe's clear vivacious assurance of her veritable bodily presence among us again is welcomed by all ears. At agreeable intervals in her lay, she describes a circular or ellipse in the air, ostensibly prospecting for insects, but really, I suspect, as an artistic flourish, 
thrown in to make up some way for the deficiency of her musical performance. If plainness of dress indicates powers of song, as it usually does, then Phoebe ought to be unrivaled in musical ability. For surely, that ashen gray suit is the superlative of plainness, and that form, likewise, would hardly pass for a, quote, perfect figure, end quote, of a bird. The seasonableness of her coming, however, and her civility, neighborly ways, shall make up for all deficiencies in song and plumage. After a few weeks, Phoebe is seldom seen, except as she darts from her moss-covered nest beneath some bridge or shelving cliff. Another April comer, who arrives shortly after Robin Redbreast, with whom he associates both at this season and in the autumn, is the gold-winged woodpecker, alias High Hole, alias Flicker, alias Yarp. He's an old favorite of my boyhood, and his note to me means very much. He announces his arrival by a long, loud call, repeated from the dry branch of some tree, or a stake in the fence, a thoroughly melodious April sound. I think of how Solomon finished that beautiful description of spring, quote, and the voice of the turtle is heard in the land, end quote and see that a description of spring in this farming country to be equally characteristic should culminate in like manner. Quote, and the call of the high hole comes up from the wood, end quote. It is a loud, strong, sonorous call, and does not seem to imply an answer, but rather to subserve some purpose of love or music. It is Yarp's proclamation of peace and goodwill to all. On looking at the matter closely, I perceive most birds, not denominated songsters, have, in the spring, some note or sound or call that hints of a song and answers imperfectly the end of beauty and art. As a, quote, livelier iris changes on the burnished dove, end quote, and the fancy of the young man turns lightly to the thoughts of his pretty cousin. Ooh. So the same renewing spirit touches the silent singers, and they are no longer dumb. Faintly they lisp the first syllables of the marvelous tale. Witness the clear, sweet whistle of the great crested titmouse. The soft nasal piping of the nuthatch the amorous, vivacious warble of the bluebird. The long, rich note of the meadowlark. The whistle of the quail.
the drumming of the partridge. The animation and loquacity of the swallows and the like. Even the hen has a homely, contented carol. And I credit the owls with a desire to fill the night with music. All birds are incipient, or would-be songsters in the spring. I found corroborating evidence of this even in the crowing of the cock. The flowering of the maple is not so obvious as that of the magnolia. Nevertheless, there is actual inflorescence. Few writers award any song to that familiar little sparrow, the socialist. Yet, who that has observed him sitting by the wayside and repeating with a devout attitude, that fine sliding chant, does not recognize the neglect? Who's heard the snowbirds sing? Yet he has a lip-sing warble very savory to the ear. I've heard him indulge in it even in February. Even the cowbunting feels the musical tendency and aspires to its expression with the rest. Perched upon the topmost branch beside his mate or mates, for he is quite the polygamist, and usually has two or three demure little ladies in faded black beside him. Generally, in the early part of the day, he seems literally to vomit up his notes. Apparently, with much labor and effort, they gurgle and blubber up out of him, falling on the ear with a peculiar, subtle ring, as of turning water from a glass bottle, and not without a certain pleasing cadence. Neither is the common woodpecker entirely insensible to the wooing of the spring, and, like the partridge, testifies his appreciation of melody after quite a primitive fashion. Passing through the woods on some clear, still morning in March, 
while the metallic ring and tension of winter are still in the earth and air. The silence is suddenly broken by a long, resonant hammering upon a dry limb or stub. It is Downy beating a reveille to spring. In the utter stillness and amid the rigid forms we listen with pleasure, and, as it comes to my ear oftener at this season than any other, I freely exonerate the author of it from the imputation of any gastronomic motives, and credit him with a genuine musical performance. It is to be expected, therefore, that Yellowhammer will respond to the general tendency and contribute his part to the spring chorus. His April call is his finest touch, his most musical expression. I recall an ancient maple standing sentry to a large sugar bush that, year after year, afforded protection to a brood of yellow hammers and its decayed heart. A week or two before the nesting seemed to actually have begun, three or four of these birds might be seen, on almost any bright morning, gambling and courting amid its decayed branches. Sometimes you would hear only a gentle persuasive cooing, or a quiet, confidential chattering. Then a long, loud call, taken up by first one, then another. As they sat about on the naked limbs, anon, sort of a wild, rollicking laughter. Intermingled with various cries, yelps, and squeals as if some incident excited their mirth and ridicule. Whether this social hilarity and boisterousness is in celebration of the pairing or mating ceremony, or whether it's only a sort of annual housewarming common among high holes in resuming their summer quarters, is a question upon which I reserve my judgment. Unlike most of his kinsmen, the golden wing prefers the fields and the borders of the forest to the deeper seclusion of the woods, and hence, contrary to the habit of his tribe, obtains most of his substance from the ground, probing it for ants and crickets. He is not quite satisfied with being a woodpecker. He courts the society of the robin and the finches, abandons the trees for the meadow, and feeds eagerly upon berries and grain. What may be the final upshot of this course of living is a question worthy the attention of Darwin. Will his taking to the ground and his pedestrian feats result in lengthening of his legs? His feeding upon berries and grains subdue his tints and soften his voice? And his associating with Robin put a song into his heart? Indeed, what would be more interesting than the history of our birds for the last two or three centuries? There can be no doubt that the presence of man has exerted a very marked and friendly influence upon them, since they so multiply in his society. The birds of California, it is said, were mostly silent until after its settlement and I doubt if the Indians heard the wood thrush as we hear him. Where did the bobolink disport himself before there were meadows in the north and rice fields in the south? 
Was he the same lithe, merry-hearted beau then as now? And the sparrow, the lark, and the goldfinch, birds that seem so indigenous to the open fields and so adverse to the woods, we cannot conceive of their existence in a vast wilderness and without man. But to return, the song sparrow, that universal favorite and firstling of spring, comes before April, and its simple strain gladdens all hearts. May is the month of the swallows and the orioles. There are many other distinguished arrivals. Indeed, nine-tenths of the birds are here by the last week in May. Yet the swallows and orioles are the most conspicuous. The bright plumage of the latter seems really like an arrival from the tropics. I see them dash through the blossoming trees, and all the forenoon hear their incessant warbling and wooing. The swallows dive and chatter about the barn, or squeak and build beneath the eaves. The partridge drums in the freshly sprouting woods. The long, tender note of the meadowlark comes up from the meadow. And at sunset, from every marsh and pond come the 10,000 voices of the hylas. May is the transition month and exists to connect April and June, the root with the flower. With June, the cup is full. Our hearts are satisfied. There is no more to be desired. The perfection of the season, among other things, has brought the perfection of the song and the plumage of the birds. The master artists are all here, and the expectations excited by the robin and the song sparrow are fully justified. The thrushes all have come, and I sit down upon the first rock, with hands full of pink azalea to listen. You listen to Return of the Birds, a serialized audiobook podcast of Wake Robin, written by John Burroughs and read by Peter Medic, with bird vocalizations courtesy of the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Recording, editing, mastering, and post-production by 44 from 26 in Bellingham, Washington. Recorded at One Fine Studio in Bellingham, Washington. This has been a presentation of 44 from 26, a family-owned and operated media experiment. We invite you to join the growing 44 from 26 community at 
patreon.com forward slash 44 from 26. For more updates, visit our Patreon page or check out 44from26.com. Wake Robin is available for digital download in e-reader format at archive.org and gutenberg.org. This is 44 from 26. Thank you for listening to this episode of Return of the Birds. Please visit 44from26.com forward slash Return of the Birds to find show notes for each episode. The show notes include links back to the Macaulay Library bird vocalizations we used in this episode, images of the birds mentioned in the episode, and more. Thank you for listening. Hey, it's Peter. One last thing. May I ask a favor? If you like what you heard, please tell a friend. Or two. Or tell one friend, and then dare another. It will really impact the trajectory of our project. Thank you. Till next time, chirp away.